the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. 602-508-0960. Open line Friday. Anything you want to talk about. What did I list? I, I, I thought of things I left out in my menu of topics while we were over the break. And I'm trying to remember what they were. They'll come back to us, won't they? Barbecue. Food. Music. I did say Sasquatch. Music, particularly country or 70s and 80s, classic rock, all that. Listener James wrote this email to me this morning, and it is fascinating. Good morning, he writes. I listen to your show as much as I can, and I appreciate the clarity that is enforced with your topics. Thank you. And yes, I like the word enforce in this context because it's getting to the point where one has to adopt a forceful stance when talking to people who refuse to listen to any conversation that derails their train of thought. So more directly to my point, I was in a conversation recently about the 1619 Project, and it made me remember what I learned in school about how people left the old world behind in search of the new world when the culture of their day no longer represented their belief systems and values, and they no longer had a voice that could be heard in the cacophony of their changing world. I think about that a lot, and it makes me wonder if conservatives are on the verge of their own diaspora of sorts. That's a really interesting sentence. Think about that a lot, and it makes me wonder if conservatives are on the verge of their own diaspora of sorts. Having been suppressed in the culture, almost completely nullified politically, Society reorganized so as to make attacks on the foundations of religious traditions appear justified. The wisdom that used to be the cornerstone of our educational systems being eviscerated and replaced with Marxist propaganda and designed to create entire generations of professional protesters and the demeanor of society becoming more hostile and intolerant toward the conservatism, towards conservatism in general. The hedonisms that profoundly appeal to followers of the left are so prolific these days that it's hard to find balanced footing in a country that is listing hard to port. One must wonder if this was what it felt like to be a helpless citizen of Rome watching as the Visigoth approached, Visigoths approached while knowing that their Caesar was too preoccupied with powers over indulgences a self-serving power that benefits none and which leads ultimately to a purging of both body and spirit. Do we conservatives stand and fight, or as our forefathers once did, is it time to heed the warning signs, test the winds, and set sail for a new world again in the hopes of preserving our culture and values? Because the barbarians are at the gates and they're pounding is deafening, and if we sit back without an appropriate response, it becomes quite possible we will be trapped here as our ships burn in the harbors with no escape. 
Wow, how smart is that? Have you heard anything so smart? And so this is obviously obviously a, a well-learned man and with the kind of education that you're not going to um that you're not going to uh, get in today's schools and we'll talk about that in a few moments based on something Andrew Sullivan wrote. One of the reasons I think um James has it a lot right but maybe something to think about in this respect is I don't know how much of those people seeking the new world's cultures changed on them. I think what happened is the Enlightenment awokened those people who were living in, whether it was religious or political or economic suppression, awakened awakened them, yeah, woke them up, let's do it that way, woke them up to a new light and a new line of thinking. How they did live was not how they had to live. It's an important point. How they did live was not how they had to live. They were woken to something new on the world stage. A country founded on the principles of natural right. America. The thing that changed was America. The thing that changed was America. It wasn't the old world. The old world didn't change, for there was always religious repression in the world. And we became the first country, the first in the history of the world in 1776 to be founded not on two things every other country was founded on, a claim to a theological truth the divine right of kings, if you want to put it that way, or bloodlines. We were the first country not to be founded on, on, on an enforced theology or blood. And by blood, I mean, you know, royal descendancy because of your last name, because of your last name, basically, or because of the station you were born into in life. We were the first country not to be founded that way. And proclaimed ourselves founded on natural rights and equality and self-government and freedom. What changed was America. So I don't think the cultures of those other countries changed. I think the Enlightenment brought some wisdom to people who had seen what was going on, heard what was going on, was told about what was going on in this country. And it was attractive to them. And so they made the march here or the swim here. They set sail here because of that in their quest of freedom as we founded this city upon a hill, this new city upon a hill. I think that's what changed. And thus, when we're asked about if we now conservatives look around in this country we may not recognize anymore, we have to start thinking about discovering a new world. There is no new world to discover. As Ronald Reagan liked to talk about in his Time for Choosing speech in 1964 with the Cuban refugee, listening to two men talk about how lucky they were to be born here, and the Cuban refugee says, how lucky you were about me. I had a place to move to. We are it. We are the last stand on earth, as Reagan said. This is it. Where are you going to find better? 
People ask me that all the time. If we have to move, where do we move to? Well, we could think about other states perhaps. But do you think that you're going to find, – find me the country. Someone said, well, let's look at Spain. And then we looked at Spain and it's now governed by a socialist president. Look, I closed my monologue with this yesterday and I'll answer Jim with it again today. It's from Dr. Harry Jaffa. If there is going to be a salvation of the West, it is going to come from the United States. The salvation of the United States, if it is to come, must come from the Republican Party. And the salvation of the Republican Party, if it is to come, must come from the conservative movement within it. And the salvation of the conservative movement, if it is to come, must come from the renewal and reaffirmation of the principles of the American founding embodied above all in the Declaration of Independence. Where else are you going to get it? Where else are you going to find it? Now, the fact that we have turned our backs, not you and me, not many listeners in this audience perhaps, but that so many in this country have turned their backs on it has been a long time coming, starting with the progressive movement. And one might even think about it starting before then. We did have a house divided in a civil war over the very principles of the Declaration of Independence after all. We just thought we won. We just thought the Declaration won. We thought the Union cause won. Why is it that you think progressives use the same interpretation of the history of our founding that the losing side and the Confederacy had? You see, that is the 1619 movement. The 69, I, I hope I'm not beating a dead horse here, but the 1619 movement came about because they bought into the Confederacy's view of our history, that the Declaration of Independence was a lie. That was the losing side, and that's what they think. As for me, if we stand with Lincoln and we stand with the Declaration of Independence and we stand with the founding, that's where the salvation of this country and the West will come from no matter how strong it seems the attacks are. So the question is, are we going to do it or are we not? I'll say more about that when we come back. 602-508-0960. What does it mean to be a conservative, you ask? This is what it means to be a conservative. It means saving the revolution. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Now, some of you write in and say natural law, natural rights. I see those words in the Declaration. I I, I have the vaguest idea of what they mean. Can you um, tell me what they mean? One of the clearest expositors of and teachers of what it is, what that stuff means, that stuff, <laughs> what natural right and natural law is. You've heard me mention his name. He's been a guest on this show from time to time. Is Hadley Arcus, formerly uh, a professor at Amherst, retired from Amherst. And he did a quick thing on it, and I think he explained it really well. We're doing conservatism? Okay, fine. Here's Hadley Arcus on what natural law means when it comes to our founding. 
The premier minds among the American founders, James Wilson of Pennsylvania, said that we were not seeking with this new constitution to invent new rights, but to secure and enlarge those rights we already had by nature. William Blackstone, the great commentator of the English laws, said that when we enter civil society, we give up those unrestricted rights we had in the state of nature, including the liberty to do mischief. And James Wilson said, when did we ever have a liberty to do mischief? Or as Lincoln would later put it, when did we ever have a right to do wrong? Even in the state of nature, he said, you did not have the right to murder and rape. And the laws that barred you from murdering and raping do not bar you from anything you ever had a rightful freedom to do. And so when the question arose, what rights did we give up when we entered under this new constitution? The answer, tended by the Federalists, was none. Alexander Hamilton put it in the Federalist 84. Here, the people surrendered nothing. It was not, it was not the part of this project that we give up the bulk of our natural rights for the sake of entering into the scheme. Well, in that case, the question arose, what was the rationale for attaching this codicil called a Bill of Rights, listing all those things we hadn't given up in that case, unless we are implying that we had indeed given up the bulk of our rights on entering the Constitution. In the Declaration of Independence, it was said that human beings were endowed by their creator with certain inalienable and natural rights. And as the line went, governments were formed foremost for the purpose, as Wilson said, of securing those natural rights. They were rights supposedly grounded in nature, in the very nature of human beings. They promised to endure in all places where that nature remained the same. That's what Abraham Lincoln was referring to when he looked back on the Declaration and said that Thomas Jefferson, in his craftsmanship there, had articulated an abstract truth applicable to all men and all times. All men are created equal, that the only rightful government over human beings depended on the consent of the governed. It was a moral truth then about the things were right or wrong, just or unjust, fitting or unfitting, for the ways human beings deserved to live. And the rights springing from those truths would hold in all periods, in all countries, and cultures, as long as that nature held the same. That's about, that's about as crisp as you can explain natural law. No right to do wrong. And when did we ever surrender that, right? We never did. We simply encrusted it or burned it into amber with our founding and our constitution, with our declaration and our constitution and fought a war over it in the 1860s. Unfortunate that we thought we should have to, but, as Lincoln pointed out, reappearing, reappearing tyranny is nothing new, not in, not, not, not in the history of the world of man. And that's why he was so enamored with the Declaration of Independence, because he said it two different ways. He said it would be one tough nut to crack and an eternal stumbling block to every reappearing tyrant on the scene. They can look back to that old declaration and see that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights. 
among those life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, knowing that all men are created equal. Now, what Hadley said in there and what we don't talk enough about is this whole issue of the consent of the governed. Listener Steve just t- t- typed in saying that was brilliant. Yes, you can. We we do strive. We strive. We strive to 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 get there once in a while. Uh, I remember I was doing an interview. If I can be parenthetical for a moment, Felix Frankfurter's wife once said Felix Frankfurter makes two mistakes when he's talking. He um. He diverts from his text as the first mistake and he returns to it as the second. But I don't have a text, so it's all one thing here. Right, Bill? Do you see a text? I have no text. Just uh, expatiating. Uh, what was I saying? Yes, I was saying that the issue of um, the consent of the governed was one that plagued, was a thought that plagued our founders because the only way they could have that we could have consent were two things elections right based on equ- human beings being equal we each had an equal say and how we each had each had an equal say not a better not a softer not a stronger not a weaker we each had a weak equal say in how we wanted this government to be organized is far so far as the policies and practices of our government would go. We each had it. That is how you get self-government and the consent of the governed. But free elections mean nothing at all if you don't have free speech. If you can't have debate and discussion and argument, that is to say the measurements of individual minds combating over public policy, you can never have consent. What will we be voting on after all? Will we be voting on a Hobson's choice, which is to say no choice? Or are we going to be vote, going to be able to vote on two different views? This is why the election of Thomas Jefferson in 1800 was so monumental, or at least so fundamental to the rest of the history of America. Because it was the first time, peacefully, peacefully, that an entirely different set of ideological beliefs replaced power when we went from the Federalist Party of Washington and Adams to, in the election of 1800, the Democratic-Republican Party of Thomas Jefferson. That was a unique event in the history of the world. Peacefully. It happened peacefully. And that set the template for the rest of our history of how we do things here. More when we come back. 602 Welcome back to the show, 602 <laughs> We remember, uh, I was just thinking of that funny text from a listener, Steve, who said that was brilliant. <laughs> I, that, I didn't do the diversion. I did the discussion about the diversion. Um, I was being interviewed once on another radio show. Someone 
you'd recognize. And, and I and I think I used a Buckley word. And on the break, I said to the host, was that too much? Should I not have used that word? And you know what he said? The host, it wasn't Bill, but it was another host on this network. He said, people don't listen to this show to become stupider. I liked that. People don't listen to this show to become stupider. Um, there is an effort to make us stupid. In the Twelfth Night, Shakespeare writes, don't be afraid of greatness. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. I'll tell you, I think Rand Paul has really achieved a lot of greatness. And when I list senators who have really been doing a great... He's here in the confirmation hearings with Joe Biden's designee, Cardona, for Secretary of Education. Listen to this exchange. Talk about nature. Listen to this. The Office of Civil Rights uh, sent a letter to Connecticut saying that uh, boys can't compete with girls in, in sports or so they shouldn't be forced here? to allow boys to compete in girls' sports. Uh, if you're confirmed, will you enforce that Office of Civil Rights opinion? Hello, Senator. Uh, thank you for the question. I understand that there are a, a lot of concerns about that. Uh, it's, it's, if confirmed, it's my responsibility and my uh, privilege to make sure that we're following uh, our civil rights of all students. And that includes uh, activities that they may engage in in high school or in athletics. What do you think in general about boys running in girls' track meets like they've been doing in Connecticut? I think that it's critically important that education systems and educators respect the rights of all students, including students who are transgender, um, and that they are afforded the opportunities. Five-tenths of one percent of the population uh, participate in extracurricular activity. Does it bother you that, like, the top 20 percent of boys running in track meets beat all of the girls in the state and that it, you know, would be... You know, completely destroy girls' athletics. The girls are being pushed out. Um, they don't make the finals in the state meet. They don't get college scholarships. That it's really detrimental to girls' sports. Do you worry about having boys running girls' track meets? You know, I, I recognize and appreciate the concerns um, and the uh, frustrations that are expressed. I've, as commissioner of education, have had conversations with families uh, who have felt the way you just described it, and families of. Uh, students who are transgender. So I understand that this is a challenge. I look forward to working with you and others to Do you think it's fair to have boys running in the girls' track, mate? I think it's appropriate for – I think it's, it's the legal responsibility of schools to provide opportunities for students to uh, participate in activities, and this includes students who are transgender. So you don't have a problem then with boys running in the girls' track meet, swimming meets, name it. You're okay then with boys competing with girls? Respectfully, Senator, I think I answered the question. I believe schools should offer the opportunity for students to engage in extracurricular activities, even if they're transgender. I think that's their right. All right. Well, a lot of us think that that's bizarre, you know, <laughs> not very fair. You know, I come from a family that has a lot of girls who have been, have competed in college athletics, have been state champions, and frankly, you know, some boy that's six foot two competing against my five foot four niece doesn't sound very fair. 
I think most people in the country think it's bizarre, you know, that it's just <laughs> completely bizarre and unfair that people, and you're going to run the Department of Education, you've got no problem with it. Um, that concerns me. And I, I think it's this kind of thing is going to lead to really just the vast majority of America just wondering who are these people that think it's okay? From what planet are you from? I mean, to think it's okay that boys would compete with girls in a track meet, that that somehow would be fair. Um, I wonder where feminists are on this. I wonder where the people who supported women's sports are on this. I mean, we all going to be okay with hulking six foot four guys, you know, wrestling against girls. Do it, you know. It just makes no sense whatsoever. And so, I think the fact that you seem to be afraid to answer the question, or you basically do answer the question by saying it's okay without saying it's okay really is a statement to a, a real problem we have and uh, a disconnect between what middle America and what most Americans actually believe. I even think most Democrats don't believe girls should run in the, in the boys' track meet. Uh, you know, boys should run in the girls' track meet. So I'm disappointed in the answer, and uh, I just can't imagine that we're going to have a policy like that nationally. The civil rights of all students is what needs to be protected. So you take away 50 years of effort to get gender equity in sports with women, 50% of the population, let us say, probably in college sports it's now closer to 60%, but you take away their civil rights to protect the transgendered rights of a population that I get is a minority, but we'll talk more about it in a moment. Portions of this show brought to you by Balance of Nature. I take it every single day because eating the right foods ensures you get the nutrients that are essential to maintaining your health and vitality. You want to boost your immunity? I can think of nothing better than getting tens of thousands of vital nutrients from all-natural vine-ripened fruits and veggies picked at their peak of ripeness, which is what Balance of Nature gives you in just a single daily dose. That's right. Tens of thousands of vital nutrients made from the best of stuff. Apples, blueberries, garlic, cayenne, onion, kale, carrots, oranges, papaya, blueberries, you name it. No sugar, no chemicals, no GMOs. It's my favorite product. And they have a great deal making it easier for you as well. Free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. Those preferred orders are great because it guarantees you wholesale pricing for the life of your time with Balance of Nature. Give them a call at 800-246-8751 or visit them online at balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. You'll be glad you did. I wanted to say something about what Rand Paul was getting into with Secretary-designate uh, Carmona. Uh, from Connecticut there. You think about everything that will be erased, Title IX, gender equity in sports, giving women the right to compete in high school and college athletics, which has been a struggle uh, and fight and good one, noble one, since the late 60s. How much of that is erased by the silly notion of civil rights for all students. What civil rights? Whose civil rights? Whose rights? We're talking about the rights, of course, of the transgender students. Now, I, I'm, I'm just not 
very expert at this, and I know many others are, but it does seem to me that we are now prepared to have conversations about things which never would have occurred to us to have even five, six, seven, or eight years ago over things that have been foisted upon and forced upon us. Um, I think I've met, I've certainly seen or been introduced to a couple transgender adults in my life, um, and and I, I don't know their paths or their stories. But I will tell you, when you are pushing this on children, it is to me no different, no different than pushing them into things that they are simply not prepared to mentally or maturely handle. And it isn't just this, but this now, too, from the left. And it's coming from all areas. From toddlers to teens, we are now teaching them about racism with a Netflix documentary written by Ibram Kendi for toddlers. We are teaching toddlers how not to be racist, as if toddlers are born racist in the first place. No, what Kendi will be doing with Netflix is teaching them to think about race when they never would have in the first place. Posing an interesting societal question, if you could create your own society from anew, from, uh, from zero, if you, will, if you would, ask yourself this. Would you want the children raised thinking in terms of race or raised thinking not in terms of race? Would you want the children raised thinking that race meant anything or would you want the children raised thinking that race didn't mean anything? To ask that question is to answer it, isn't it? Isn't it? Because, of course, children are not naturally raised to think in racial terms any more than – well, they, they, they have to be taught it. They have to be, as Rogers and Hammerstein says in South Pacific, they have to be carefully taught to think in those terms. Children are not naturally raised to think in those terms. So now we have Netflix forcing them, toddlers, four-year-olds, to think in those terms. The Cartoon Network takes you a little bit older, right? Gets you just what, what, what if, if a toddler is, you know, I mean, a toddler can be younger than four, of course. But if we're now talking cartoons, we're now talking, what, ages five, six, seven? The Cartoon Net- Network is now promoting the virtues of transgenderism and has a whole course of study on teaching transgenderism to kids. Teen Vogue, which gets you just a little older yet, just a little older yet, you're now teens, so we're obviously 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, teaches the virtues of communism. Go to the Teen Vogue website. Type in Karl Marx. There is story after story after story about how good Karl Marx was and how great communism is. What are we doing to our children? So when we talk about forcing transgenderism into their curricula and into their understanding with these study guides that the Cartoon Network is promoting, think about how you are creating problems to solve problems so that when you want transgendered students – Boys on girls' sports teams, running teams, track teams. Was this a problem before? 
Or is it a problem we created and want to create so that we can, in the words of the 60s radicals, break the system? What system? Obviously the system of everything we have known, whether it has to do with nature or anything else. And let me say something that I hope doesn't come off callous, but sometimes I just think that the first task of the sane is to state the obvious. If you have a transgendered high school or college athlete, let's say a boy who wants to identify as a girl, a man who wants to identify as a woman, they still have the physical natures and attributes of that which they were born into, correct? Am I missing something? That's the whole point of transgenderism is that you don't emotionally and psychologically identify with the physical attributes you were born into, right? So if we're talking about nothing more than physical competition, why wouldn't the guy who wants to be a girl or the boy who wants to be a girl just stay on the boy's team and compete there? Fine. If it's civil rights we care about, then obviously any kind of discrimination would be outlawed against that anyway, right? Why should the he be able to choose to compete on the she team? Even though he identifies as a she when his physical attributes are that of a he. Because it breaks any notion, breaks down every notion, obviously, of not only competition, but truly civil rights, the civil rights of the girls. They have the right to compete amongst and against themselves. They have that civil right too. And to enforce the civil rights of one at the expense of the civil rights of the other is not civil rights. It's civil wrongs. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show on this open line Friday, 602-508-0960. Linda's in Phoenix. Hi, Linda. Hi. Say, oh. I, didn't, I didn't catch the beginning of your uh, discussion here about transgender uh, education, but the two things that I did hear you say was that uh, with, with Cartoon Network and Vogue, those are things we have choices about. Um, there is a current... Uh, Due to Black History Month, the, state, the city of Seattle has decided to adopt the uh, recommendations and curriculum of Black Lives Matter, which, not surprisingly, has a whole unit on transgender. Correct. Yes, I had made that point, and not just Seattle. It's happening in other places. I think I was using the example from Ames, Iowa, of all places, Middle America. But you're absolutely right, Linda. They have merged together. You bet. There was no opt-out. You know, when I was a kid or had kids and you didn't want the student to take sex education or something, you could opt-out. Correct. And there, there, was, there is nothing for that. I, I, yeah, and, 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 and you and I might even disagree a little bit on uh, the opt-out you, you, Teen Vogue and Cartoon Network kind of thing because – you're right. As a technical matter, no one's forcing you to watch that. But it is so suffused throughout our culture now. 
It's almost like telling it's it's in our air. It's almost like telling people if they don't like pollution, don't breathe. Almost, almost. Well, yes, because all the you know it is so prevalent. It's hard. You cannot turn off the culture anymore. Not anymore. No, you can't. Yeah. Well, thank you for your show. Oh well, no, thank you very much, Linda. I appreciate it. That that has that that problem has grown. Where yes, of course, of course, that's right. But think about about it in the other way. I mean, this is this is much like, much like Twitter saying, "Well, if you don't like it, don't use it." Well, I, if that is, or Facebook, if that is the main communication tool, and cable TV is as well, um, and it, uh, you 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 end up with what I I think I used the phrase earlier, the Hobson's choice. You can become a hermit, or try to. You can become a hermit or try to, but it's awfully difficult. It is no part of civil society, none. I find it interesting that the rest of the culture that opposes homeschooling says to homeschoolers, yeah, but aren't they going to be – how are they going to be socialized? How are they going to be socialized? They punish people for trying to withdraw from the crud they get in the rest of the culture. And then say, well, you can turn it off if you want to. And then be lambasted and mocked for it. A lot more to say on all this. Open Lines Friday, your hour coming up, 602 508